Welcome to Cartoonist Kayfabe. My name is Ed Piscor. I'm Jim Rugg. Today we're going to the drawing board with Jaime Hernandez. But first, uh, Cartoonist Kayfabe comic book Christmas in July is the very final Saturday in July. We are going around to the free little lending libraries uh, in our neighborhoods. You know the ones, Ben. They look like uh, designer mailboxes or something. Uh, full of books. We are going to be putting in our comp copies of books that we've created ourselves, minus Red Room, of course. And we are going to be taking our doubles that we've been accumulating over uh, a lifetime of collecting and finding things. And we are going to be s sowing the seeds of creating comic book readership by sharing these comics in those libraries, uh, imagining that people are going to see some comics, pull them off, when appropriate, give them to their kids, read them themselves, get reacquainted with comics if they're not acquainted already, and it is a, a worthwhile action item to do what you can to help create comic book readership, to create a more flourishing comic book landscape. Uh, if you like, follow, and subscribe to these YouTube videos, you help mitigate the kayfabe effect, which is what happens whenever we put a video out early. The people who uh, see the videos first get first dibs on the stuff we're talking about. Uh, this very well can apply in today's episode with this 10 Years of Love and Rockets uh, comic that came out in 1992. Um, by early afternoon, midday, the comics we talk about, they become prohibitively expensive if you could even find them online. And if you watch these videos to the end, that boosts our uh, content out to comic book loving YouTube viewers who haven't seen our work yet, who haven't subscribed yet, and we are just one percentage point on the way to the subscriber base that we were hoping to get when we first started the channel. Uh, Jimmy, I think the way to sell it is that uh, this is a very familiar cover because very often, like, uh, you don't know what you don't know, right? And little did you know, some of you out there, that when you're digging around in those dollar bins or whatever, you are passing by some holy scripture, some sacred tablets on how to make comics the fucking Love and Rockets way. Because in this 10 years of Love and Rockets comic book size comic, uh, we get two features, one with Jaime, one with Gilbert. We're going to be doing the Jaime one today, where they are laying out the process for how they think about and construct their comics. It is how to draw comics the Love and Rockets way. You've seen this comic a million times, and you might have even thought, hey, I have every issue of Love and Rockets. Uh, I, don't, I know what this is. They're just trying to reintroduce this to another generation of readers. Like, they do that often. They try to create some, like, little, little freebie or something to just get people introduced to the character. It feels overwhelming when you see ten volumes of Love and Rockets. Let's get you hip. But this has a feature that uh, should be in every maker's... Um, you know, how to make comics bibliography, this is way up there. Yeah, it's very, very detailed, very generous of, of the Hernandez brothers to go into this much detail, uh, talking shop and showing examples uh, in progress to illustrate what they're describing. So, yeah, I'm excited. I was excited whenever I found this. Yes. It was kind of a random discovery and thrilled to, uh, to go through it and now, you know, discuss it with you. The... Uh, confidence that these guys speak in, the dogmatism, 
is a dogmatism that I associate with that first gen Fantagraphics, Klaus, Peep Bag, the the Bros, where those just say like and and as a kid growing up, when you would get a chance to finally read an interview with this cartoonist you dig or that cartoonist. And this goes all the way up to Gary Groff and Kim Thompson, this dogmatism and this confidence and this, like, my way of the highway kind of rhetoric, vernacular, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I took their shit for gospel. Like, the, it is the way to do it. Um, but as you grow older, you realize it's Jaime's way to do it. And there would be these punk rock, like... I always thought it was chicken shit to draw in blue pencil. <laughs> like, that makes you never want to draw in blue pencil, because if I mean doesn't do it. Did you highlight this for today's episode? Or I did. Is this something from, okay, I thought it might have been like it, whenever you were a kid and no. read this or something. <laughs> <laughs> nah, the blue highlighter is uh, just some funny stuff that popped up while uh, rereading it this time, man. Yeah, it's really great. You know, you start with your materials, and we actually pulled out the, the Todd Hignite Art of Jaime Hernandez book because there's a shot of his tools. And uh, the big one that he highlights in here for me is the pen nibs, the Hunt Extra Fine 22. That is all I heard about were Hunt 102s. Yeah. So to see him pull out a different uh, 22, um, that's new to me. I don't know how many cartoonists use that pen nib. And uh, I looked them up online, so that's about right. You know, that's about what they look like. I think Gillette might make them now mm-hmm. instead of the uh, the hunts, but that's what they look like. So those nibs are still around and out there and apparently still in use. You know, it's interesting to think that this is 10 years into Love and Rocket. That's 30 years ago that this book was, th- this comic book was published. So yeah. uh, kind of wild. Interesting in, with the materials, you see these uh, rapidographs, and he talks about, like, the further off in the distance the object is in the panel, he'll use a thinner and thinner line with the rapidographs to create that kind of atmospheric perspective. Uh, says some things in there like, you are responsible for what the reader sees and how they see it. Uh, so it's up to you to like call attention to certain things. you got to push things into the background. you got to bring things up uh, into the foreground. Um, Talks about, like, in the early days when he's learning to use a nib, it was just more economical. Those sable hair brushes are expensive. Although he says here, back in the day, $7 for a brush. Those things are about 30 now. They And they've been 30 since the year 2000. Like, whenever I discovered, like, what the Raphael brush is that you need and what a real sable hair brush, it was about, like, 30 to 40 bucks. Yeah, and, not, not cheap. And... The one that you get might not actually work. It might have a split hair. It might be a little fucked up. Oh, yeah. So you might have to, like, get another one. Very true. He also says he uses Bristol board as smooth as possible because the pen flows over it a little easier. When I was first read one of these and I bought pen nibs and stuff, I gave up the pen nib because I was drawing in my pulpy sketchbook, and it was garbage. Like, yeah. I was like, I just can't use pens, and then didn't didn't use a pen for 10 years because of it. Could have used this tip about the smooth paper. Yeah. Big difference of what, what your dominant drawing tool is, I think, dictates your surface of your paper. When you start uh, with that pen, too, and you're like, this is a pen. I have used pens. I use Bix on my test. And you start to do the push and the pull, and you start blobbing yeah, and spraying. Like... It, beca- it feels hopeless. You almost need somebody to tell you, pull. And that's the stroke. Pull, pull, pull. Move the paper, but it's all pulling motion. Uh, because he uses the pen, he doesn't really uh, do the little highlights in brunette's hair very often. That's why you get the full black 
Yeah, the disadvantage of using the pen, <laughs> doing that that shine in the hair. Yes, starts to process on legal paper, and he goes through this whole out like it's like alchemy, where he says that like he'll write something out and then turn five pa- panels into one panel, just like whittle things down and get it tighter and tighter and tighter. And I feel like that that is a hallmark of Love and Rockets comics is the economy. Uh, not only in the art making, but also the storytelling flow. They give a lot of respect to their readers and expect their readers to keep up with them. Yeah, it's real interesting. I don't think it's on this page, but he talks about some of that is because it is sometimes takes a while between issues. So you do want a lot to happen, and that's part of the economy. And uh, some of it is just his own engagement, too. Yeah. You know, like figuring out what, what works in terms of storytelling, but also... Sometimes you're padding it out. Like, you don't want it to be, like, one panel's a scene over and over. It's almost too much. Yeah. It's really intuitive. Whenever you read this kind of description, it, it, I find it very insightful. It's it's further from a lot of the process stuff that I see where it's like, you write an outline, and then yes. you flesh that out. This is much more almost like a feeling. Yes. And, and that is captured so well here. And you can find conversations with the, the brothers – on YouTube, and they do not speak with any fucking academic pretext about about the comics that they make. They talk about the characters and what the characters would do and how the characters feel. Uh, it's not in this piece, but in another article, I remember Jaime saying that you know he's not going to put the steering wheel on the other side of the car just because like we have a long established language of comics. And it's it's what you do with the stuff inside the box. You know, I have a story to tell, but I don't need to play around with panel borders. He talks about a little bit here. I found that really interesting. You know, he says, like, the tiers are all the same size, four and a quarter inches tall each with an eight-inch space between them. Uh, paper 11 by 14, art 10 by 13. But having that same size tier, like, I think it all the time. Like, once you get into a certain format, you almost start processing life that way like thinking that way and at this point he has so many reps working in that four and a quarter inch tall panel you become a master of that that size of drawing that space that you have to work with yeah we see in kind of a crude form and maybe we pull out cartoonist kayfabe is brought to you by the comics that ed piscor and i make Red Room Trigger Warnings, the second season of Red Room, all self-contained stories, issues one to four, now available in comic shops everywhere. Red Room, the anti-social network, the trade paperback collection of the first season of Red Room, now available in comic shops everywhere, minus 28 countries where it's banned in 10 comic shops, but you can still request it there. And coming in September, the collection, the trade paperback of Red Room Trigger Warnings will be in stores in September. You can pre-order that now at your local comic shop or online wherever you buy your books. Hulk Grand Design Monster and Hulk Grand Design Madness in comic shops everywhere. The 60-year history of the Incredible Hulk. I am writing, drawing, lettering, coloring, the Grand Design treatment, retelling that 60-year history. And you can now pre-order the Hulk Grand Design Oversized Treasury Collection, uh, about 40 extra pages in that. It'll be in stores before Christmas, but you can pre-order it now in your comic shops or in your bookstores wherever you buy comics. And now back to our regular scheduled programming. Heading to San Diego Comic-Con? Get ready to see Scott Snyder himself by brushing up on your favorite Snyder comics with Comixology Unlimited. 
With Comixology Unlimited, you get unlimited access to an unrivaled library of over 40,000 digital comics, graphic novels, and manga titles, featuring content from over 125 publishers and thousands of independent creators from around the world, including exclusive titles from Scott Snyder. And if that's not enough, you can also save up to 15% when buying select new and current comics. Try Comixology Unlimited today with a free 30-day trial. For details, visit comixology.com slash unlimited. You know, many years later, you get better scans and stuff. Here's a modern page. So this is the stuff that blows my freaking mind. Yes. He describes how he starts drawing on the page, and it's rare to draw from start to finish because it bores him. So he starts drawing. He's drawing what he wants to draw, the women, you know, uh, the characters, stuff like that. Uh, then maybe he'll ink a little bit, ink some borders, do some lettering. A whole tier might be blank. This is this is how how yeah. how's this possible? It's like you anticipate something's in there, but you don't have it figured out yet. Uh, incredible. Yeah. Also liberating. This was a big hurdle for me um, because I would have pages where it's like I would want to draw it all before I start inking, yeah. and it'd be like this panel's not working, and I've erased it and redrawn it five times. It's still not working, and it'll ruin a day. It'll ruin hours. Yeah. I start inking now, like, okay, let me letter and ink, and I'll just keep kind of staring at that piece and thinking about it, maybe think of a different solution for that panel. And it's been hugely liberating, especially if I'm on deadline, where it's like, I, I'm not going to waste half a day not drawing a panel. Yes. Because the other panels are ready to go. But doing, like, writing and filling in, like, where it's like, I'll come back to there. I'm not sure what goes in there. That's a whole nother level. I mean, can you imagine working that way? Because it's also that thing of, like, how do you gauge your time, and are you on time? Are you making good use of your day? Uh, there's a lot of thoughts that go that go into that. It's also the, um, you know, where you end up piling on yourself. Yeah. Whenever, whenever things start going bad, it's like, man, you really have to have some kind of a, a tool set to pull out of that tailspin. Yeah. Nosedive, whatever the metaphor is, it can get it can get dark quick. I used to think you were a bum if you did simple straight panel layouts. I wasn't thinking of people like Barks, who never had a fist or a foot sticking out of a panel. I was thinking of guys like Gil Kane, who did these long angled panels, and I thought that you were a professional if you did it that way. You added extra zest to the page. Now he prefers to let the picture do the talk and not the panel. And that that is a hallmark of uh, of that generation, and and they've instilled that, you know, like that's that's carried on throughout, like the 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 general structure is, is that's fine. And I do like that he acknowledges, you know, it's perfect for Gil Kane. It's just not the only way to do it, or the way it needs to be done. Mm -hmm. Light and dark was an interesting thing uh, that he's talking about because he's known for just like spotting tremendous blacks on the page. You could see great examples everywhere, yeah. in single images, and as a p entire page unit. And uh, he would ink in the figures, and it all begins with their costuming their, and their hair. So if there's a lot of Hopi on the page or something, you got a lot of black in the hair, maybe like the black trench coat or something. Like that's the main concern. Get that in there. Put the outline for everything else, and now you've got to start balancing. It's incredible to see these things in progress. Yeah, absolutely. Like, there are your outlines that you talk about, and then to see, like, how that, how much more gets added. Yeah, and, and look at, like, there is no indication in this pencil part 
that there would be a circle of template being used mm-hmm. to kind of create a frame around the character in the background. But now you can't picture that image without that frame uh, of that circle template. It's, yeah. it's, it's just a master. Really is. And, and it doesn't feel like this is your standard way of making comics either. No. The fact that this has been around since 1992 feels like, why isn't this a more common way to make comics? Like, it's Jaime telling us how to make comics. Why aren't we all making comics like this? One of the early name drops of Jesse Marsh in his bitch. Yes. Man. How about that? Yeah, I'm eager to look at, at uh, some Jesse Marsh at some point. Dark Horse has a nice collection of the Tarzan comics that he's referencing there. I, and I love... What what he's talking about here, man, because he's talking about that fucking pretentious, hyperbolic, gritting out shapes bullshit that turns people off. Like, most people don't think in those ways, and very often when you take a fucking Carl Barks page and you put your little grid on top of it, it's intuitive. Like, Carl Barks did not do that. Like, you're seeing some, you know, you're trying to discover, you know, the, the last number in pi, when you do that stuff, and he's just like, yeah, I don't think about that, he's excellent, I can never do it. Inking kind of goes along with some of the stuff that we talked about. Uh, he's He breaks kayfabe and talks about how he spots uh, the big areas of black by having, like, the big rapidograph, doing an outline around your, your characters, and then hitting it with the brush. Yeah, I was, was uh, happy to find out Dan Klaus does it that way. <laughs> It's it's nice that um, Jaime has some insecurities like the rest of us because uh, you don't think about it when you see his art. It just feels like it, it drips of confidence. So uh, nice to know he's human. Yeah. Uh, shading, Sh- shading is an interesting thing when you think of Jaime because yes. it's so it's so open. But there's a lot of you could call it color, you know, because it's it's the textures mm-hmm. on her outfit. It's these like parallel lines in the background it's simply the tile on this like bathroom shower it's plaid yeah he, ha- he has a collection of this stuff and it's not traditional shading but it does add grays and, and sort of another value on the page but if you look at his earliest love and rockets there's a lot more shading yeah he talks about kind of working away from that he's so good from the beginning that you know, like, it's easy to miss the evolution. Yeah. But it is there, and it's kind of cool. I mean, at this point in 92, like, he's mature. Like, this is, this is, you know, I mean, he may be a better draftsman now than he was then, but in terms of mature style, he's got it all worked out at this point. Yes. But you can see that evolution in the very earliest issues. Yes, and he continues to evolve, and, and he even describes it in this piece, that, that the evolution could be completely invisible to everybody else, but he'll look back at stuff and wonder why he drew such bulbous heads or big cheeks. Right. And he doesn't believe that he's working in the style that he thinks he, he, he'll he arrive at for like the next 50 years, thinking in Dan DiCarlo terms or whatever. Uh, and he does continue to evolve. When you grab these, like, latest Love and Rockets, it is different than this. Mm-hmm. Line, uh, this is that argument against rapidographs, basically, for, for your ink in. Like, you need some thick and thins. Yeah, although he does mention, again, that he doesn't do the uh, heaviest weight on the bottom. Right. Which is a, you can see it in How to Draw Comics the Marvel way. Like, I feel like that's one of those old-time, this is an inking I don't know, way to be consistent in your inking. And it's not something he does, but something that was common at the time. Drawing freehand, I was like, what What does that mean? Like, of course they draw freehand, but he's talking about, like, fuck the ruler. Like, rule, rule it out whenever you're penciling it, but you got to ink that stuff organically. And that goes 
also with uh, the the textures. Sure, you could put a zipatone in there, but you couldn't even imagine Jaime using zips on uh, his character. You wouldn't want that. Figures and faces. This is like this is a, one of those academic parts that uh, is beyond intuition. He talks about like he grids everything out. Uh, the character proportions in space are all accurate. He has sizes in mind for his characters. He's got body types in mind for his dudes. He ran into trouble of like having three guys with the same body type, and then he started to establish them uh, further after he sort of like realized that, made a dude a little chunkier, a little bit more dad bod, a little skinny guy, and then you have your Joe Average. Um, talks about the different noses and eyebrows that different characters have. Um, says that the perspectives are all right and that it's a real bitch to do. But even if you don't see perspective in there, he rarely cheats at it. And you feel that. Yeah, absolutely. Also talks about um, natural balance pose is very important. And in a weird way, it relates, I think, to the line quality that he's describing the page before. You know, like, it's trying to get life on those pages and these figures, and it seems like that kind of balance pose weight is a big piece of the life that he brings to these characters. Uh, yeah, another part of uh, balancing the page is drawing characters in the various panels, all different shapes and sizes, with the exception of these moments like this that take place seconds after one another. Then he will, he'll do these beats, and it makes perfect sense. But otherwise, you want to have some small characters, you want to have a close-up, you want to have some good mid-shots and stuff for, for that kind of balance in terms of uh, visual design. Yeah, it could be really dull if they're all the same size. You know, conversely, it reminds me of the Ivan Brunetti Comics Journal interview when he talks about repeating same-size characters. Yeah. And then that creates, like, animation. And I think you get it really, that's a really good example of it, those four panels. Like, it really feels like Maggie fooling around there. I was taught to draw... Everything, anything but the head first. My life drawing teacher said never start with the head. He says that he uh, doesn't do that. It's the one thing he remembers. He doesn't do that. Uh, he starts with the head. He draws the body. And then at the end, he redraws the head. So right. my life drawing teacher was right. <laughs> That's pretty good. Uh, says he doesn't bend the anatomy too far, just enough to give it light, life. And he gives some examples like characters arching their backs. Um, you know, like showing that maybe the most extreme arch if you're going to have that moment. Uh, and then running. If you draw somebody realistically running, it looks stiff. So that is the one place where he has like a car cartoony uh, method for the anatomy there. Also, when it comes to composing these, these pictures, you don't put the head directly in the center of the panel. When Howard Chaikin was giving his clinics, the, the, the paradigm gim uh, clinic, it always makes me think of, like, Wes Anderson and Stanley Kubrick that do a lot of that one-point perspective in the middle of a frame. And I'm sure that lots of us imitate that because we see the, these filmmakers doing it uh, to interesting effect. But I think they also play with their frame arrangements. Yeah. So even though it may be a fixed focal point in the middle, it's not necessarily symmetry all the time. Yeah. He, he, like, checking is saying something like, you know, it's balanced. Like, it, meaning symmetrical and he's like you can have balance in the church but we're making artwork here you don't want that kind of symmetry talked about dude he's one of the greatest profile drawers in all of comics 
And it was great to see that he actually worked at that. Yes. He saw the Dan DiCarlo stuff and couldn't dream of, like, drawing something like that on his own. Because it is some weird abstractions that you have to do. Like, this is like a fat pad on top of the eye that has to come down. Mm-hmm. Like, there's, like, the way the the nostril... Like, I just... After 20 years of professionally drawing, I just started to draw better nostrils recently. You know what I mean? And make them actually come off the skull a little bit instead of behind. Because uh, he was talking about, like, making all of his characters look like they were gagging. Like, all of my characters look like they smell something bad. Uh, so it's great to see that he was, that's something that he worked on and became, you know, one of the greatest profile drawers in comic history. He's phenomenal with faces, and I think a lot of it's eyebrows. And I think you can see it in, like, that's a pretty good eyebrow, but if you look at Maggie's eyebrows, they're completely different in all four of those panels. And, and like, everything is. Like, the eyes are all different, the, the, the mouths. Just, he's extremely exceptional, and like I always say, like I'm trying. If I want to learn about finances, I'm going to ask Warren Buffett. I'm not going to ask your fucking book learning pit professor, you know, about concepts of finance. Uh, I don't want to hear some douchebag who has, you know, some MFA or something teach me about comics. I want to hear Jaime Hernandez, who's professionally making some of the greatest comics in American history since he was 18 years old, tell me about how to make comics. Uh, defining characters, some of that stuff we were talking about, sizes, and and uh, down to body language, even. Yeah, it really talks about the subtleties that define the different characters. Yes. Backgrounds, getting into the perspectives, cars are a bitch. Never use photo ref. But he did use that, for issue two, he used a, an image of a Arnold Schwarzenegger holding up a model, and I like you know that exact image. But he he does a, a lot of stuff on his own. It's, it doesn't look like Schwarzenegger, you know. Like the cartoony section, I love the cartoony section. Yeah, you know, like he talks about he and Gilbert still fans of cartooning will never get rid of sweat drops. You know, if someone's nervous, sweat drops are flying. If someone's been punched, stars. I am such a fan of this, and you know. Try to make, try to explain to me why this, these things are bad. It is not going to work. Absolutely, you know, like I would, I would, I would make more of a judgment against the comic that is against these things than I than I would that these kinds of marks. I mean, this to me is part of the language of comics. Totally. It's inherent to comics. Why would you not use it? They would shame the fuck out of me, man, at, at the Kubert School for for putting little lightning bolts uh, coming out of dudes and stuff like that, man. You know, bug eyes, like all of this stuff. Like well, this is a shorthand. This is, this is such a big part of how you communicate quickly and look at manga. It's mm-hmm. full of it. You know, the stuff that you read a two page spread in a second and a half, they're using this language. When we were, uh, at WonderCon and I was digging for, uh, comics with Jaime, like he had his list. And it was on a piece of paper, and it was uh, yellowing. Like, he had this list for a minute, and it was the smallest square, and he <laughs> unfolds it. And the stuff that he was looking for, it was he was grabbing uh, still old uh, De- Dennis the Menaces and stuff. And, like, ones he was pulling out were ones that he had as a kid that he doesn't have any longer. And you would think he would have filled in those gaps, but I feel like it's endless. Yeah, right. There was so much of that stuff. We touched on the perspective stuff already. Uh, the way that he does it, he doesn't like really grid off that, that vanishing point far away. It's, I forget what the name of that technique is, but like on one side of the paper, you'll have a bunch of, uh, marks every, say, quarter inch. And then on the other border, you'll have marks that are like 
you know, two-eighths of an inch or, you know, well, that's not quarter. Uh, but you know what I'm saying, like one-eighth of an inch or something. Hit, have those marks hit, and it creates a perspective without exactly having right. your uh, vanishing point. And I saw, I actually, um, you know what, I'm going to grab it. This would be a good I actually saw this on a uh, on a Daniel Warren Johnson Instagram video where he was like showing some process stuff. He has an actual ten point mapping thing that's like a naval tool, which is like hundreds of dollars. It's hard to find, but uh, on on uh, Amazon you can find this thing. It's like what is that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. It's it's eight pointed and it's designed to create even spaces. I uh, Woodworkers use it, like, say, if they want to put a nail evenly or something like that. But for perspective, this is something that we can use where you can have, and you lock it in, and you have your even spaces. So you, like, make a mark right here. And then you can uh, shrink them up. And then on this side of the paper, have smaller marks. And then hit those those lines, and you can create a far-off vanishing point that is way off the page without using yardsticks and stuff. This is something I never thought about, something I never knew. But the second I saw Daniel Warren Johnson with that tool, like, I knew what that was, you know, because usually, like, you would see guys uh, with a ruler right. get, like, smaller points. So, like, this is, like, a two-second solution to do that where you don't have to fucking rule things out. It's amazing. Eye movement's fun. This is uh, what I think of as, like, directional devices and things. Yeah. And he kind of talks about whenever he first started, first heard of this, how it seemed impossible. Yeah. Which makes sense because it is like aligning objects in a panel to kind of focus uh, wherever you want the eye to go. Um, you know, you can use blacks to do that. Uh, the way you spot blacks is one way to do that. But to me, these are directional devices and, and basically focal points. Yes. And I do think a lot of that happens naturally. Yeah, I think so too. Especially for like somebody who's attuned to the language of comics. You just do things, and in your in your mind, you're saying, like, this will flow nice into the next thing. And then it's later that you discover, or somebody else points out, like, oh, that's so smart the way you had this point there. Uh, when you do it intentionally, you run the risk of just creating tangents. Pacing. I know some cartoonists find it interesting to have a scene of someone walking through a door for half a page, but I don't. <laughs> My stuff has become so tight, sometimes scenes happen in one panel, and... Uh, this could be a note for a lot of comics in the 21st century. I feel like that became a staple of having the uh, talking head kind of comics. So maybe learn from Jaime. Try to get a little extra story in that issue. Absolutely, man. And it's interesting because the next paragraph is if you if every panel was a scene, it would drive him crazy. Although in a weird way, it might be interesting for a short story. It's kind of an experiment, but as you know, all things in 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 kind of in balance. Yeah. But it is cool to think you have those options to decompress something or to compress it down to, like, a whole scene in one panel. It's kind of amazing. What do you think this is? Is that, like, the uh, the Television. Color, yeah, like the Late colored night. screen? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's part of what, like, he goes on to describe this idea of, like, it's not filler, but it's it's sort of creating time or it's creating a, a jump, you know, from a scene to another scene. And what do you feel that with? And in that case, it's just an interesting visual. You know, describing a late at night kind of moment. It Ch just changes in pages. Yes, yes. And and uh, this is stuff that, like, this is the stuff that makes him one of the greatest cartoonists ever because uh, that phrase, kill your darlings, he often employs. And this is where he's thinking his characters through a little bit more. 
man, everybody's evil in this issue. This is the stuff that, like, when you listen to Jaime speak, and we are all fortunate enough to have these YouTube videos where you can uh, listen to him at colleges giving lectures and, and, and just describing his thought process when make, when putting comics together, that it's the most riveting thing to just shit, sit there, shut your mouth, open your ears, and listen to like how he thinks things through because it is – it's so human. Like he thinks of these characters as people and you know, this person would do this. Like I couldn't imagine that she would do that. Uh, it's real to him, man. And, uh, he, and it's captured here in the paragraph reasonably well. Yeah. There's not a lot like, like he calls out the, the changes that he makes on this page, but a lot of them aren't drawn on here yet. The one that you can see is this panel where he ends up changing. Like, I don't want to say the nature of the story, but the storytelling itself, it's little subtle changes. You know, like um, this panel was originally part of the conclusion of this conversation, and then he realized he didn't need that part. Like yeah. he wasn't going to show that part. So maybe that's what happens if you're drawing your page and you haven't worked out all those details ahead of time. Um, you do end up having to make these changes. But, hey, if Jaime makes these changes, it gives. I feel like it gives us permission to, you know, approach our work the same way, have that flexibility on the page. Yes. And uh, I believe we conclude with the phases where he's basically talking about, I don't want to be like one of these guys that uh, draws the same thing over and over again. He calls out Wally Wood. I don't want to draw the same pose uh, of a guy crashing through a, win a wall after I hit a certain age. Yeah. Yeah, that's a sad, kind of a sad statement there. But not not untrue. I think Wally Wood has a lot of cautionary tales that, that, that unfortunately, we take from him. Yes, sir. So that is uh, at the drawing board with Jaime Hernandez. Reading this, man, really excites me to get back to, uh, to the drawing board. Uh, this is as good a how-to-draw-comics book as you will find in, what, five, ten pages of it's, it's exceptional. conversation. And we didn't even get to the Gilbert yet. That's for another video. Yeah, what a resource this book is. Yeah, so for those of you uh, on the hunt, you're looking for 10 years of love and rockets, 1982 to 1992. Uh, who knows what the fuck you got to type into Google, because I bet you if you put in 10 years of love and rockets, you're going to get a lot of hits before you get to this comic. But you see this cover out in the wild, do not pass it up, whether you have all 50 issues of Volume 1 or not. Good to go? I am. Cartoonist Kayfabe comic book, Christmas in July is going to be the last Saturday of uh, this month, July. We are going around to the various free lending libraries in our neighborhood. We are going to stuff those lending libraries with our comp copies. We are going to stuff them with our doubles. I have doubles of this. Somebody, this is going out to one of those uh, free lending libraries, man. Uh, the idea is to put comics in front of people who either haven't seen comics in a while or need an introduction into this medium that, that we so love and adore. Like, follow, and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Hit the bell so that we can notify you when new vids are available. Jimmy, what do you have out there? Hulk Grand Design Monster and Hulk Grand Design Madness are in stores now, and you can pre-order the Hulk Grand Design Treasury, oversized Treasury collection. It'll be in stores before Christmas. It'll be a perfect Christmas gift for new Hulk readers or longtime Hulk fans. It's the best book ever created, so pre-order that the next time you hit your comic shop because I don't want this to be the last grand design, so let's sell a, a few of these and uh, make sure Marvel will do another grand design. I hate to be the guy that killed that line, 
And uh, please join me on Patreon.com slash Jim Rugg. And thank you to everybody who has already joined me on Patreon. I can concur. The uh, Hulk Grand Design is a fantastic book. I just got hold of that PDF, man, and can't wait to see that thing on paper. Red Room, the Antisocial Network, uh, collects the... 2021 season of Red Room Comics, and it is available in trade paperback form uh, on Amazon, your local comic shop, and any other uh, good book-buying venue that you can find and that you have access to. I'm asking that you support uh, the next trade paperback uh, for Red Room, which is Trigger Warnings. It's going to be coming out in September, uh, collecting the 2022 season of Red Room Comics. Murder on the Dark Web for Fun and Profit is the name of the game in Red Room Comics. It is banned in more than 28 countries. It is banned in more than 10 comic shops. So order and pre-order these comics online. You can hit up my link tree in the description below this video, Amazon, wherever. Or hit up my Patreon. Three bucks gets you the archive there. And you can uh, read the comics uh, on paper uh, or on uh, digitally today. What else do we have out there, Jimmy? Subscribe to the Cartoonist Kayfabe e-newsletter at the links below this video. You can also find Cartoonist Kayfabe t-shirts and merchandise at the links below this video. That's another great way to support the Cartoonist Kayfabe channel. Give them those marching orders, Jim. We'll be on our way. Make more comics.